Well, I want to begin by just telling you a little bit about what happened on Saturday the 25th, Saturday the 25th of February, year 155 AD, okay, Saturday the 25th of February, 155 AD, uh, an old man was arrested, um, and the charge against him uh, was very simple, was that he refused to bow down to burn a tiny little bit of incense and confess Caesar to be Lord and God. He refused to do that because he was a Christian, and so he was arrested. Uh, This old man was a man called Polycarp, um, and he was the bishop of Smyrna this this time. Um, On the way to the trial, where he was about to be tried, the sheriff of Smyrna tried to convince him to change his mind. Uh, Look, what's the harm in offering, burning a little bit of incense and saying some words that you don't even really mean, I know, but, you know, save yourself any trouble. Why are you, why are you going through all this? But he shook his head, probably Polycarp shook his head and said, no, that would be dishonest. And so was taken to uh, trial before the proconsul there in the city. A large crowd had gathered to hear the trial. Uh, he was quite a famous man. Uh, a large crowd had gathered. And again, the, the proconsul, taking pity on this poor old man, uh, tried to convince him to change his mind and see sense. Uh, look, just swear by the genius of Caesar, the proconsul said. Uh, pledge your allegiance to him. Curse this Christ. And I'll release you. I'll set you free today. This is his very famous reply. Before all the crowd, Polycarp said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. Now, how then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Well, the proconsul had no choice, and so he read out the charges to the crowd. This is a Christian the leader of the Christians, an enemy of our God, he has our gods. He has taught many that they should not sacrifice to the gods or worship them. And so he passed the sentence, take him to the stake and burn him. Take him to the stake and burn him. And so this old 80 plus year old man was led to the stake by the soldiers. And as they started to tie him to the stake before they lit it, he said, Leave me alone. God has given me the courage to stand. I will not walk away from the flames. And so they didn't tie him. They lit the stake and he burned to death. And his courage, according to the the church historian Eusebius, uh, his courage silenced the crowds. Now, I think when you hear a story like that, certainly when I hear a story like that, I must admit I think I could never do that. I could never do that. I'd never have the courage. I'd never have the commitment. I would have, I would have wimped out probably at the very first stage, not the very last stage. But what you see in this letter, what we have in this postcard from Jesus to Smyrna, are the resources, if you take them to heart, are the resources that can fuel courage and commitment to the Lord Jesus to persevere even when under extreme pressure. 
And I think this question, how can I remain faithful under pressure, is a question that's relevant for every single one of us. Uh, I think it's relevant uh, for every one of us, quite simply, because we are all increasingly under pressure for our Christian faith. William alluded to it already. There is an atmosphere, there's an attitude in our culture that doesn't just view Christians as good living folks. That's how it used to, they used to be viewed, good living folks. Um, I don't particularly want to be good living, but I respect them for being good living. That's how Christians used to be viewed. Today, it's very different. Christians are viewed with suspicion. They're viewed as dangerous fanatics especially those evangelical Christians, those born-again ones. You just listen to the media, watch TV, read the blog posts. We are viewed with suspicion. Now, again, I don't want to over-exaggerate this in light of what we've just, been, what we've just seen in the video. Uh, the pressure that we face is, is nothing in comparison to what Polycarp faced, to what the church in Smyrna that this letter was originally written to faced, to what our brothers and sisters are facing uh, throughout the world. Uh, our pressure is nothing compared to those as we, read, as we saw in Sudan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, and North Korea. In North Korea, for example, there are 100,000 Christians in concentration camps, work camps, purely, simply because of their faith in the Lord Jesus, for no other reason. What we face is nothing in comparison, and yet, and yet. So I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but I don't want to dismiss it either. I, I would be amazed if there's not one person in this room who claims to be a Christian who would also say that they don't feel nervous and awkward and fearful when it comes to inviting uh, uh, someone who's not yet a Christian, who's a family member or a friend, to church. Do we not feel that's a bit odd and weird and difficult? Um, or inviting a colleague or a classmate to come along to an alpha course? Are we not filled with, with fear and apprehension for such a thing? No, this is relevant for us in our situation too, uh, as a relevant question. How can I stand for Christ while under pressure, while under pressure. Uh, if you've been here for the last three weeks or so, we've, we've begun this little mini-series in the book of Revelation, and we'll see, we've, we, first two weeks we were looking at the, the writer of these postcards, the Lord Jesus himself, um, and who he is, uh, and then last week we, we looked at the first of seven postcards from Jesus, uh, and we saw that uh, the seven in, in Revelation is a symbolic number uh, drawn from Genesis chapter 1, probably, uh, where it, it's a picture of completeness. And so these are letters written to not just seven individual congregations in Asia Minor, but they are symbolic. They're representative of all churches in the region, all churches in the world, all churches in history. And so as we read through this, these letters, it is absolutely no accident that when you read through these letters, you think, ah, that's relevant to us. Yeah, that, that speaks to me and my situation, although it's a little different. And so that's the way they're designed. These letters are for us to eavesdrop into. Um, and so each little postcard that we look at, you'll see, actually has a very similar structure to it. It begins with some reference back to who is 
writing this postcard, a reference back to the wonderful vision of the Lord Jesus back in chapter 1. It then concludes with a little foretaste of the wonderful, fantastic future we have as Christians um, that's spelled out in Revelation 21 and 22. And so each of these little postcards is a bit like a little mini book of Revelation because that's where they live their lives between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the restoring of all creation. We live, they live in that difficult in-between time and surprise, surprise, that's exactly where we live in that difficult in-between time. How can we remain faithful when it's difficult, when we're under pressure? And so what I want to do for these next couple of minutes, we don't have too much time, but these next couple of minutes, I just want to try to ask and attempt to answer two questions. Number one, why were they fearful? Why were they fearful? What was the pressure they were under? And then secondly, how can they and we remain faithful? So why were they fearful? How can they and we remain faithful? Okay, first then, how, sorry, why were they fearful? Why were they fearful? Well, if you've closed your Bible, it be useful to open it up again. Just uh, have that uh, little postcard open in front of you from Jesus. Uh, we'll see that, uh, that this little postcard begins in the same way as the one last week. It begins with a reference back to who it is that's writing it. And after, we have got this description of Jesus, who's the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. We'll consider that in a moment. Um, we read these words, verse 9, I know. Each letter begins with that. I, look, I know. I know what you're going through. The Lord Jesus knows, understands, and cares about the situation faced by all his churches, by all the individuals who are members of his churches. He knows, he understands, and he cares. And we discover that he knows what they're facing, their affliction their affliction. Now that's a very, that's a bit of an under-translated word in our uh, translation here, um, translated just affliction. It's really this, it, it carries with it this idea of being pressed down under a massive heavy weight. That's the situation they find themselves, under enormous pressure. And what is the pressure uh, that they're facing? Well, two things, two things. First, they're facing the pressure of poverty, the pressure of poverty. I know your affliction and your poverty. Um, again, this is, uh, again, a very soft translation. Uh, the idea here is not so much that they, well, like they couldn't afford uh, a foreign holiday or they didn't have a second car. Uh, no, the idea here is they didn't have a first car and a holiday at home would have been a massive luxury. Uh, the word might be better translated destitute. That's what they are, destitute. It's not that they don't have the luxuries in life, but they don't even have the essentials. They don't even have food and clothing and shelter. They're under incredible pressure. They're destitute. Uh, and that's made all the more stark, uh, given the fact that they live in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is incredibly, in the ancient world, was, was an incredibly wealthy 
city. It was a natural harbour. There was a thriving trade, uh, import-export trade. Uh, there was, it was a very wealthy city. It had all these very f- beautiful temples. It had a massive amphitheatre. It had a, a, a library that was amazing. And it was actually referred to as the glory of Asia. This was an incredibly prosperous city. But the believers there didn't get to share in that. They didn't get to share in that at all. They were extremely poor. Now, we're not told exactly why they were poor. We know from church history that actually many slaves and lower class uh, people uh, were attracted to Christianity. So the church was filled with slaves and, and, and working class folks. Uh, but I think we're meant to understand here that the, the pressure that they're under, the poverty that they're experiencing, is directly connected to their Christian faith. Uh, it's a result of their Christian faith. Uh, now, perhaps it was simply because, uh, like Polycarp, Christians refused to show their love and loyalty to the emperor, bowing down, lighting a little, burning a little bit of incense, confessing him to be Lord and God. Um, perhaps because they refused to do that, they were viewed by, by other people uh, with suspicion. Perhaps they were viewed with disapproval. And so no doubt there were many Jews and many pagans that lived in the city that uh, refused to do business with these odd, difficult, potentially disloyal Christians. And perhaps there was many that refused to employ folks because they were Christians. You can imagine the scenario, can't you? You're in the job interview. You've got through to the final stage interview. You've been interviewed now by the head of HR um, and that person's working through your, your application form and they come to the other interests section. Oh, look, I see here that you, you, uh, you attend church regularly. Um, is that something you feel strongly about? Uh, if you were to be successful in this job interview, would that be something you'd be willing to negotiate or, or uh, to perhaps to give up? Because obviously we've got certain commitments, we've got certain days we need you in, in the job and so on. Uh, oh, oh no, you're not willing to negotiate that. Oh, oh well, look, thank you very much for your application form. Uh, we'll be in touch. And so for many of them, they were under real pressure. And you know, if you've ever sampled it at all in any sense, if you're under financial pressure, if you don't know where the next meal's coming from, If you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, that brings fear, doesn't it? Fear, anxiety, worry. They were afraid. The first reason they were afraid is because of their poverty. But then the second reason they were afraid was because of the persecution that was going on uh, in Smyrna. Let's read on. Um, Verse 9. I know your affliction and your poverty... Yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what, they, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. We see here that the persecution was coming to them from three different angles. Three different angles. They were under real, there was real hostility against them that they were experiencing in three different ways. Number one, loss of reputation. Loss of reputation. They were being slandered. 
I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. They've been slandered. Christians in the ancient world were slandered in all sorts of ways. Uh, first Christians were in the ancient world were slandered uh, and accused of incest. Because they talked a lot about loving brothers and sisters. And so that language was quickly distorted and they were accused uh, of incest. Christians were accused of cannibalism by the pagans, by the Romans and Greeks in the ancient world. Because they talked about sharing in a meal where they ate the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. So they were accused of being cannibals. And they were also being accused here clearly of being disloyal being disloyal. Each one of those accusations is unfair. It's untrue. It fails to understand what the Christians were really saying. But nevertheless, the slander was going on. But here it seems that the slander was particularly coming from the Jewish community in the city. It's coming from those who say they are Jews, but are not. Um, The Jewish religion in the in first century Roman Empire was regarded as an ancient religion and they enjoyed special privileges and special freedoms. So they, as a Jewish community, were permitted not to bow down to the statue of the emperor. They didn't have to burn incense and confess him as Lord and God. There were special privileges for the Jewish community. They were allowed to say their prayers to the one true and living God to pray for the emperor. They were permitted to do that. And obviously when Christianity gets going at the very beginning, um, the vast majority, certainly if you read the book of Acts, the majority at the beginning were Jews. And so Christianity was viewed initially as a Jewish subgroup, a weird sect of Judaism, these Christians. But by the time this book has been written... Clearly, the Jews are beginning to say, hold on a minute. These Christians, they're nothing to do with us. They're their own group. They're not Jews in any way. And by the way, you know they're not offering their incense to the emperor. Deliberately stirring up trouble for the Christians. And so because uh, they were slandering the Christians then they were not anymore under the protection, uh, under the privileges that the Jews once had, and that caused them terrible trouble uh, in the first couple of centuries uh, of Christianity. But what we have here is that while the Jews are saying Christians are not Jews, notice what Jesus says in this postcard. The Jews aren't Jews. The Jews aren't Jews. Those who claim to be Jews, but are not. They're claiming, Jesus is saying, look, I understand, this is, Jesus is saying, like, I understand that they are uh, descended from Abraham, but in no way are they the people of God. In no way are they the people of God. They have rejected me and all that their scriptures pointed to. They are not my people. And actually, Jesus is saying that they are a synagogue, an assembly 
of Satan. Now, he's not, this is not an anti-Semitic comment. There's a lot of that in the news at the moment uh, with the labor uh, opposition uh, and the, the, the accusations been uh, leveled there. This is not an anti-Semitic comment. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish man. He is saying that when you side against God's people, it's not that you become a Satan worshiper. No, no, but you are lining yourself. You are, there's only two sides, God's side and Satan's side. So when you line up against the Christian community, you're siding with the evil one. That's what's happening. They are a synagogue of Satan. And so Christians were losing their reputation been slandered, particularly by the Jews. Secondly, they're, been, they're losing their freedom, um, that some of them are going to be put into prison. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Jesus is saying, look, it's going to get worse before it gets better. For some of you, you're going to lose your freedom because of your commitment to me. You're going to have to endure uh, a loss of freedom in prison. Uh, and it's going to be a testing for 10 days. Now, what is that all about? A testing for 10 days. As you've seen already with the number seven, numbers are used symbolically uh, most often. In fact, I would argue always uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, and what we see here is, again, a symbolic number, 10 days. Now, again... You need to know your Old Testament to get, the, to get this punchline. In the book of Daniel, when he was tested, remember he and his friends ate both just um, vegetables and water for how long? Ten days. A testing, a testing time where they're put under pressure, but it's limited. It will not last forever. In the same way, that's the symbol here. They've been put under pressure. It'll be very difficult but it will not last forever, 10 days. They were losing their uh, reputation, they were losing their freedom, and in some cases, they'll be required to lose their lives. Some of them, it would require them being faithful to the point of death, verse, um, verse 10. And we saw, just as I started at the beginning with uh, the story of Polycarp, that was very real. That was a very, that, that prediction cashed out in real history. Now this is a, a, a postcard which is one of only two, which is one of only two in the seven where there is no criticism at all. There's no criticism in this letter at all because they were fearful, yes, but also faithful, faithful in the midst of it all. They were astonishingly faithful, even under enormous pressure. And we see that, um, that very ordinary men and women who put their trust in the Lord Jesus in the ancient world, in our world today, as you saw in the video, can find the courage to remain faithful under enormous pressure. And the question then is, how is that possible? How is that possible? Now, I think that's a, a very relevant question, as I said. While we may not be facing the intense persecution of poverty and of uh, being put into prison or even threatened or lives threatened in any way uh, here in the UK in the 21st century, nevertheless, 
with, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus and we remain committed to him, it will involve inevitably some difficult choices that we've got to make. Some situations that will cause us fear and anxiety. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of where I've seen that, even in my own circle of friends. Um, uh, I know a guy, Mark, uh, who, a friend of mine in England, uh, when he was converted, he had a very difficult choice within his first few weeks of being uh, a Christian. Within his first few weeks of being a Christian, his wife turned to him and said, I think you're getting way too fanatical about all this Christian, all this religious stuff. And look, if you keep going with that, I'm out. It's either me or this church stuff. You see the choice? Christ or family? Christ or family? Which are you going to choose? And for him, he chose to practice his faith, remain committed to the Lord Jesus, and she left him. She left him. Uh, filed for divorce. Uh, another friend of mine, Joe, uh, while working for a, a big company, was put under pressure to, to do something, let's not go into the details, but to do something that ran straight against his conscience. He felt he couldn't. That was dishonest. I cannot do that. And he knew if he refused to do that, uh, with a family to provide for, he knew that if he refused to do that, his chances of any promote, at best, his chances of promotion would evaporate. At worst, it would mean the end of his, what was a promising career in that particular organization with no good reference. Christ or career? What are you going to choose? For some of us, uh, and this is probably the most common one, it's Christ or reputation. Christ or reputation. Um, and so uh, we see conversations or we're part of conversations that unfold uh, with colleagues or classmates uh, where the Lord Jesus has been slandered, where Christianity has been talked about as if it's a fairy tale or a myth. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know if you speak up to share your particular Christian views, to share the, the Bible's exclusive claims, to talk about uh, the, the ethics of, of the Bible. You know you'll be regarded at best as been weird or deluded, or at worst, dangerous. Dangerous. But either way, you can kiss goodbye to your good reputation. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? It's difficult, isn't it? It causes us anxiety and fear. How are you going to, how am I going to remain faithful in those situations where we're faced with those difficult choices? And here's the answer in this uh, little postcard from Jesus. How then can we be faithful? This whole book is written to Christians under pressure and it's designed to give them the big picture, the bigger perspective of what's really going on in history, what's really, what are the spiritual realities that are currently happening that, that are not seen by our physical eyes but are nevertheless absolutely true. Here's what you need to see. And if you see each of these things 
you will have the resources to remain faithful even while you're fearful. First thing that you need to see is you need to look at your risen Lord. Look at your risen Lord. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. When Jesus uses these words and describes himself as the first and the last, again, that is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, where we read these words. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus is claiming to be God here by using these words, the first and the last, claiming to be the king, the divine ruler of all of history, the one who knows the beginning and the middle and will guarantee the end. He is the one who's completely in control. They are, no doubt, fearing the threat that is coming from mighty Rome. Rome, which has the power to wield the sword, the power to throw you in prison, the power to end your life. What you need to see at that moment is that there's a bigger authority. There is a greater king, King Jesus. The one who is in control of history and nothing happens. Nothing happens without his express permission. And all one day will have to give an account to him. He is the Lord. He's the Lord. And the only way that you will remain faithful, even though you're fearful is by seeing that. He is the Lord. But I want you to see he's more than that. He's the risen Lord, the one who died and came to life again. Because in the days of his, uh, his ministry on earth, he was the persecuted one, wasn't he? He was the persecuted one, and he was completely faithful, even to the point of death, in that he went willingly to the cross for us. And what I want you to see is if God can use the greatest injustice, the murder of the innocent, perfect Lord Jesus, to bring about the greatest good, life, forgiveness, hope for all his people who put their trust in him, then he is good enough and powerful enough to bring good out of our struggles and difficult situations. And I think there's incredible comfort in that. That there's a, there's a, I don't see, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why God is not doing this thing in my life that I would long him to do. I, I, I don't know. But by realizing that he is the risen Lord and he is good enough and powerful enough to bring good out of evil... I can trust him that he's going to do that in my circumstances, in my life, with all my disappointments, with all my frustrations. And so I can trust him. I can trust him. Will I be willing to take a bit of slander? Will I be willing to take a bit of um, persecution? Will I trust that God has got a plan even in that? Because he is the risen Lord. The risen Lord. Second thing you need to see is you need to look, not just at the risen Lord, you need to look at your riches. They are physically poor, but notice what Jesus says, yet you are rich, that you're rich. 
Uh, you see, it's possible in the Bible to have all the money in the world, to be incredibly wealthy, to have a massive stock portfolio, to have uh, property all over the world, to have a huge bank balance. It's possible to have all those things and yet be poor, poor, miserable, to have nothing that matters. What Jesus is saying is that these believers, while they do not have the physical necessities that they need, they have everything that matters. They have riches that can never be taken away. Because they put their trust in Jesus, they have complete forgiveness, a cleansed conscience, the gift of total pardon. And they've also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. A sense, a real sense on their heart that God is by their side with them every step of the way. And the power to change the brokenness in their lives. They're rich. They're rich. They have everything that matters. Um, I was reading a book um, by Richard Wurmbrandt. He was uh, someone who was uh, a pastor in post-war Romania when the communists took over and he was put in prison for, for 16 years and most of it in solitary confinement and yet he can say this. Now this is spoken by a man who was beaten regularly and in solitary confinement and on a starvation diet, right? That's his situation and here's what he says. The communists believe that happiness comes from material satisfaction but alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I sing for joy every night. Sometimes I'm so filled with joy, I would burst if I didn't give it expression. Here's a man who could see his riches, even though he was physically poor. Forgiven by God, part of his family. The gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll only keep going when you see your riches. You need to see the risen Lord Jesus, see your riches, and then lastly, see your reward. See your reward. As I said, each of these little postcards finishes in the same way. It all finishes with a foretaste of this glorious vision of our fantastic future in Revelation 21 uh, and 22. We read here, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse 11, the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. You see, this life is not the end. There is hope proved by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, and as we saw two weeks ago, he is the one that holds the keys of death and Hades. That when he rose from the dead, he now possesses the authority to release anyone from the prison of death and to take them home to be with him, to enjoy life uh, and a personal face-to-face -face relationship with God forever. And he will rescue us from the second death. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? The second death. You can read more about that in Revelation 21. Uh, it's really this idea that there is a fate worse than death. There's a fate worse than death. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Um, and the fate worse than death is that you might be separated from God and experience conscious punishment forever. 
That's what the Bible calls second death. To be cut off from God. To be cut off from all his blessings forever. That's what we really need to fear. And yet that's the very thing that the Lord Jesus rescues us from. Because he took our penalty on the cross. He bore our sin and our shame and our failure and all uh, the consequences for all the ways that we've ignored and rejected God and mistreated other people. And because of that, we do not have to fear any penalty. He has taken it all for us. And so our reward is life and joy and beauty in the new creation forever. That's what's in store for us. And it's, when, it's only when, I think, you keep all three of those things in view that Jesus is your risen Lord, you have everything that truly matters, and you have a fantastic future in store for you. It's only when you keep those three things in mind that you will be, have the resources to be faithful uh, even while you're fearful. It will give you the courage to conquer your fear. And as we come now and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we all admit, and we all have to admit, that none of us have been completely faithful, have we? None of us. We have all given into fear at different times. But what we are reminded of as we take this meal is that the Lord Jesus has paid for all our faithlessness in the past, in the present, and in the future. And what we do now is we come to him and we say sorry as we take this bread uh, and this juice, we say sorry for my faithlessness and we want to recommit ourselves to being faithful to the Lord Jesus and thank him for what he's done for us. I will pray uh, and then we'll serve uh, these trays and eat together.